0: You're listening to Simpler One Earth Living from Jubilee One Earth Economics and Simple Living Works with co-hosts Lee Van Ham and Jerry Iverson. With every year that passes, evidence mounts that the current economic and political systems cannot deliver the social and ecological justice that is necessary to sustain life on our planet. Let me repeat that. With every year that passes, evidence mounts that the current economic and political systems cannot deliver the social and ecological justice that is necessary to sustain life on our planet. Where then do we turn? Women are an obvious and underrated source and answer hiding in plain sight. Women are creating systems that are far more just and far more life-giving than the ones which currently stress the planet and most people. Let me clarify one point. Today's podcast, Conversations, is not about women elevated to positions of leadership in male-oriented paradigms. Rather, our conversation is about women who can act boldly in expressing the wisdom of the feminist ways of running households, businesses, societies, economies, and political policies. Today, you'll hear such a woman, a feminist economist who focuses on economic justice as a primary measure of a healthy economy. She recognizes that focusing on economic growth can never get us to the economy we need in the 21st century. So with hundreds of other women in the economy who were intent on feminist economics, Dr. Brenda Weiss, our guest, points us to the way through where currently there seems to be no way. Greetings, Flea, from Paso Robles, California, and Simple Living Works. Greetings to you, Jerry, from
1: San Diego and Jubilee One Earth Economics. It seems I say something like this in every podcast and every time it's true. And again today, I'm really happy that we get to share Brenda Weiss with listeners today. Oh, and I should say that I think in the conversation, a couple of times I referred to her as Brenda Weiss. Not, Not good. Her name is Brenda Weiss. Okay, well, I met Brenda 15 or so years ago. I was staying in her home because her husband, Barry Shelley, and I were attending and leading a workshop in the Solidarity Economy Network Conference that was happening in nearby Amherst, Massachusetts. My introduction to feminist economics was just beginning around that time. In this podcast conversation, I get to ask Brenda, Well, what is feminist economics? And she gives us a really thorough, clear answer. She's been working with this for a couple decades. So it's really, it's really great to have her talk uh, on this. Well, it's clearly her passion. And I also asked her in the conversation about evaluating an economy, my measures other than growth. I love her answers. They're really important. So, Jerry, please share a little more of Brenda's bio with our listeners.
0: Brenda Weiss is professor of economics and coordinator of development studies at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. In her own words, Brenda says, I'm particularly interested in issues of economic justice, and I bring that commitment to my research, teaching, college service, and my life off campus. I strive to make economics exciting and accessible to introduce students to a range of viewpoints, issues, and questions often left out of economics courses. I've been teaching a course about women in the U.S. economy for 30 years. I also teach Foundations of Political Economy, which highlights how power shapes the economy and economic outcomes. I work with the Center for Popular Economics, CPE, since the 1980s, providing economic literacy training and analysis to social justice activists and grassroots organizations. Let's go now to Lee's pre-recorded conversation with Brenda Weiss.
1: Well, I'm really delighted today that Brenda Weiss is with us here in the Simpler Living One Earth podcast. Um, I met her a number of years ago and was in her home and uh, I, I just want to read a couple things, Brenda, from your, uh, that I found online, which I get, think explains to our listeners why on this, in this particular podcast, uh, we're interested in talking with you. Uh, you start right off on the Wheaton College in Massachusetts website in, in this little uh, heading about, in other words, about Brenda Weiss, I am particularly interested in issues of economic justice and I bring that commitment to my research, teaching, college service, and my life off campus. And then a couple paragraphs later, I've worked with the Center for Popular Economics since the 1980s, providing economic literacy training and analysis to social change activists and grassroots organizations. So welcome, Brenda, to, mm-hmm. this, to this conversation. I'm delighted that we're having it. <clears>
2: Thank <throat> okay.
1: you. Uh, I'd, I'd just like to start off with this uh, question. I don't know that you like to be called a feminist economist. I know I don't particularly like the term. Uh, I, like, I like how you talk about it. Uh, online, more when you talk about economics with a gender perspective. Um, I think that kind of gets past any negative feelings people have about uh, feminist, the word feminist, uh, and I know you teach a course in women in the U.S. economy. So, how, how, do you, how do you, how does this differ as an economist? Because this is an economist with a different kind of edge, a different kind of perspective and explain that, how that works for you. Sure. Um, Well, actually, I don't
2: have any negative reaction to the word feminist because maybe it's because I'm a little young, like I was a little born a little bit late to be part of the second wave women's movement. And so I wasn't really part of, you know, that kind of those debates, Um, although my mentors and teachers were. Um, So like I know there have been times when I've been working with students and I felt they had some kind of a emotional reaction to the word feminist. And, and I would tend to say, to me, it's about, it has the, the bite of being something like a humanist, right? That it's,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, I'm a humanist. I value the dignity of human beings. And I think that women or people who identify as women or who society identifies as women are fully human, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To me, that's not very radical. It's kind of as radical as saying Black lives matter, which doesn't mean white lives and Asian lives don't matter. It means you know that historically, we haven't been giving them their, their due, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of being a feminist economics, there's different uh, feminist economists, there's different components to that, right? So at the sort of the the kind of the more surface level is about thinking about Women, the people who've lived their lives as women, um, and believing that economic structures historically and in, in just everywhere we know about, and even today, tend to assign women to economic roles that are uh, give them give us less power, give us less of a reward, that we often have a voice, and so feminist economists believe that you know women men and people of any other gender, now that sort of people's gender identities are more fluid, uh, that, you know, our economic position shouldn't be assigned on the basis of our gender. So there is, you know, kind of a political impetus amongst feminist economists to sort of analyze the ways in which economic structures have disadvantaged people according to gender and to try to uh, work to change that. But it also goes deeper. Right? It's the notion that um, most economic structures we know about in this sort of feminist language have been, have had, um, have been androcentric, you might say, right? that um, both the economy has been designed in ways that has prioritized and given more value and, and precedence to what were thought of as masculine traits and masculine people, and that also the, the way of thinking about the economy has biases in it that are masculinist biases. And so to me, that's, yeah I'm excited about the part that says um, gender should not dictate or strongly shape our economic roles and rewards, but I'm, I'm even more excited about the part that says, because we've been living in you know, societies where our thinking has been shaped by these notions of gender, there's weaknesses in how we think about and design the economy that has to do with sort of um, raising the value of what's thought of as masculine and lowering the value of what's thought of as feminine. So there's a deeper part of the discipline that's uh, of the feminist economic project that's rethinking how we think about the economy. It's kind of vague,
1: but it it I thought I found it very elucidating. Thank you. That. Uh, uh, really covered a lot and I think really establishes um, the whole field of uh, this economics feminist economics and, and I'm, I'm glad the word is is as you describe it you've described it very well taken the taken the any edge other it has for some people right out of it on the other hand the word should have an edge in it because this is a kind of edgy uh, economics that we really need to feel the edge brushing up uh, against us and cutting into um, the things that haven't been right for a long long time since the inception of u s economics um, but okay so you've already perhaps touched on this but in this is a tough field uh, for you to achieve at, at least or to feel not just achieve but to feel full um uh, respectability and to feel like um, you're on a, a footing that, well, most of the time you probably feel like like uh, you have to establish yourself. Uh, I don't know if that's true, and maybe on your faculty that's not true at all. But but there must be joys. There must be challenges. Uh, both. There must. I, I'd be interested in your saying just a little bit of what. What has brought you great joy in all of this? And what do you continue to find challenging, Brenda?
2: Yeah, I guess before I get more into the joy and challenge question, just on, on what you said at the start, I, I think the discipline of economics, as I understand it, is particularly difficult. And I think in the United States, perhaps more so than in some other places, perhaps much of the rest of the world. So it's economics is no, known as a discipline that's very, it's got a, an orthodoxy, Mm-hmm. So, and you need to tow a certain line, and if you don't look at things in that way, you're considered to either be not an economist or just not very smart. Right. And it seems that the gatekeepers work very hard to make sure that people tow the line, and there's a lot of you know anecdotal mm-hmm. evidence, et cetera. So it's not it's not just um, it's not just a discipline that's difficult in which it's difficult to be a woman it's also, you know, I'm not just a feminist economist, I would call myself a feminist political economist. Mm. So so my stand, my economic understanding and advocacy has to do not just with um, power and inequality related to gender, but also I have a class, a class analysis and an anti-racist, you know, understanding, I I hope, or I'm trying to develop that anti-colonial kind of understanding. And if you Basically when I say I'm a political economist, I'm saying in part that I believe that their that power plays a key role and that the struggle between different groups um, shapes what's going on in the economy. So if you know much about the predominant you know, mainstream orthodoxy, a lot of economists would say, well that's a great thing about a market economy, a capitalist economy is that you know uh, the invisible hand, Uh, doesn't have favorites and doesn't, you know, (laughs) give better things to their friends or people of their race or other men. It's just totally fair because it's neutral, a neutral arbiter of all these individual decisions, right? But so I, so within feminist economics and there is a very active International Association for Feminist Economics, and that was founded in about 1992. I think I was at the first few meetings of that as a graduate student, um, and even though the first meetings were in the United States, the founders were very intentional about wanting to be an international organization. So I feel like you know I'm pretty well connected through IAFI to have a pretty good sense of the lay of the land for feminist economists, not just in the U.S., but in, in some other places. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to say that feminist economists, that's a huge umbrella, right? So mm-hmm. they're very mainstream orthodox economists on, by and large, but they have a feminist um, agenda. But then there are people like me who are political economists uh, who also marginalize within the discipline for other reasons. So... When I went to graduate school, I went to University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And at the time, that was the 1980s, it was one of two schools that was most known for teaching political economy. And that was UMass Amherst and the New School in New York. I was from small town Missouri. I couldn't imagine living in New York City. I thought I would have a headache the whole time. So I went to UMass Amherst. And I think because I went through that program, which was a political economy program, and the students and faculty were, you know, quite left of center, some of whom will call themselves Marxist economists, I never expected to be a major player in the discipline. I knew sort of my place was going to be on the fringes, and that's really where I wanted to be. Um, But I I did want to say, I think I'm rambling a little bit here, but coming back to the the feminist sort of agenda. Economics is even more male-dominated at the sort of graduate level and beyond than, say, math and a number of natural mm-hmm. science disciplines. It's very male-dominated. And I, I was just thinking this morning about, um, I think it was 2018, there was a, an undergraduate student, Alice Wu, who did her, like, undergraduate senior thesis on this online economics job market, uh, what do you call it, listserv? Not a listserv. I can't think of what it was, but, you know, this thing that's online where people are talking about what's going on in the job market. And this um, undergraduate student did a textual analysis of the most common words that popped up in text referring to either men or women. And the most common word used on that, I can't remember what you call that blog, website, uh, anyway, website, mm-hmm. to refer to women was hot.
1: Was what? Hot. Hot? Hot.
2: I think oh pregnant, pregnant was like number two, and marry or getting married was number three. And that wasn't the same for men, whose words were things like macroeconomics and I can't remember what else. Right. So yeah, it's a very. It's not a. Um, it's not a. A discipline that's very welcoming, certainly not to women. Well, I, I mean, go beyond that. I'm sure I don't know if there's a transgender presence much yeah. in sort of the larger discipline, or there is a bit uh, kind of rising uh, LGBT mm. sort of analysis, but not much of that. Um, that I know, the um, National Economics Association is um, mostly black economists, and you know, so there are these groups that we're on the fringes, but we never yeah. seem to have much impact. Yeah on the, the where the power centers are. So I don't think that was ever really a goal. I mean, I don't have, I'm not well versed on when revolutions happen. I think that they do happen. You know, I think the discipline, you know, should the earth survive as a habitable planet for human beings, maybe the discipline will undergo some major revolution and paradigm shift. But, you know, I don't know what it would take to get it there. So I, I've never really, I don't like if I were to go to the the annual um, meeting of the Allied Social Sciences Association. So that brings together all these different economics associations. I don't go to the sessions organized by the American Economic Association, which is the power center. I go to the feminist economists and the political economists and the National Economic Association meetings. And and that's what interests me. You know, so it's not it's not really on my radar to, ah, to
1: try
2: to wow. change the design.
1: that thank you that that's really describes yeah. uh for me anyway what uh kind of what the landscape is and how uneven it is and and, and also just the importance for uh all of us as who are listening to this to Think about the value of heterodox economies i I, th- I don't i mean to me heterodox economies are are the only source that can save the world. I think the dominant e- economy is going to continue a path of incredible destruction um, so it's another reason by the way why why you fit with The two organizations that sponsored this podcast, Jubilee Economics Ministries, Mm -hmm. are now One Earth Jubilee, actually, we refer to ourselves most of the time. And then also the uh, Simpler Living Works, which is all about um, consuming less and so on. Um, Well, after that uh, wonderful description of Mm -hmm. kind of where you see yourself in all of this, uh, and and, and you, seem, you seem to know that that's where you, in fact, can have your most uh, best expression, that any other place you would just be silenced. So gather with these folks, and, and um, I, I suddenly wish our, our, re- our listenership was about two million, uh, <laughs> uh, just to, to raise up this kind of voice.
0: We'll return momentarily to our conversation. We urge you to do all you can to reduce the wealth gap that is now bigger than it's been since before 1980. Since 1978, worker pay has increased 12%. Care to guess how much CEO pay has has risen? 940%. CEOs are heads of corporations, so avoid consuming products and services of these corporations wherever you can. One way is to use cooperatives. Use everyone you can. No cooperative pays their CEO exorbitantly. For starters, be sure to bank with a credit union. Avoid big banks. Get your church and organizations to do the same. If you have a food co-op nearby, be sure to shop there instead of the the corporate food chain grocer. And buy food directly from farmers at farmers markets. All these actions care for our planet. Big corporations and big banks do not. They destroy our planet in pursue of profit. So let's take action. The hour for change is late. Now let's return to our interview with Brenda Weiss.
1: I want to talk with you, Brenda, about uh, the kind of the spiritual nature of of economics. I got into this quite a bit when I wrote my first book, where I had a whole chapter on economics as religion, not just as, um, as analogous to religion, but actually functioning uh, like religion. Harvey Cox, at, uh, the theologian from Harvard, and then David Loy, the Buddhist uh, theologian. Also, they, they both just said, again, like I just said, it, this is religion, this, this is religion. This isn't, this isn't just, uh, there, it's a belief system it requires a lot of faith to, to uh, do this. And there are deities and there are priests. and Okay, so I'm not asking you to go into all that. That's what I went into. But, but how do you understand that kind of thinking about the field uh, of economics, the work of economics, uh, and, and kind of where spirituality functions in this whole field? Do you have thoughts about that?
2: yeah i I do I mean I can remember years ago reading an article uh, I can't remember the exact source by Harvey Cox making that kind of argument. And I found it you know it resonated with me. I guess maybe I'm not as familiar with the articles about the economy, the actual real world functioning of the economy as a religion or religious practice, but it makes a lot of sense to me to think of the discipline of economics and the way economists think about it, that they have a certain religiosity around it. And, you know, it's a matter of faith. They don't, most of their, you know, most important tenets can't be proven or disproven. They just, you know, believe them. Um, I think, I think um, like I'm someone who has a pretty, um, uh, what's the right word? Um, maybe amorphous or fuzzy or something sort of spiritual spirituality in a way mm-hmm. you know um worked out very carefully so it's so i feel you know maybe it's going to sound new agey or something but i feel like if i'm going to think about what god or spirituality is to me it has a lot to do with what i would call love and connection um, and mm, maybe yeah. love and connection.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, th- how do, how do th- then that seems like that would translate well into uh, how you teach economics because um, an economics without love, though it's not a word probably used a lot in, in, in instruction of classes, I don't know, but um, it seems to fit. And then also about, I mean, economics is great at disconnecting people or at connecting people. Yeah. And it's no. great at showing love or it's great at, great at showing dislike and hate. So, yeah. uh,
2: <laughs> so certainly the, when I think about you know my personal journey, I went from a Midwestern, very strict Southern Baptist, very devout Southern Baptist, You know, background to sort of a place of just agnosticism. I didn't really there. I had some issues, and I'm talking about myself as an undergraduate now. Issues with that approach. Um, I grew up in Missouri, Mm -hmm. and I was attracted to um, the idea of socialism. I think you would have called it, but basically, again, so not to uh, have people react to these words that are sometimes problematic, but that. know, that people should, there should be some democracy in the economy, that people should have a voice about the work they do, that people should have a voice about what happens to the value they create, that one, you know, people should not exploit other people. And so I always thought my commitment to progressive economics was rooted in that same kind of, you know, love one another that was the good side of what came from my religious upbringing. And I would say, in fact, so, you know, that's the sort of political economy part that wants to, you know, uh, end the various economic hierarchies and, you know, uh, create sort of meaningful work and give people voice in the economic system and have people's needs provided for, I feel like all of that sort of po- those political economy commitments are very similar to the kinds of biblical you know, principles that I was taught as a child, but I think even so in feminist economics, and I imagine a lot of, I know some of the, you know, most, some of the theorists who've developed some of these theories have been most influential, but right now, one of the major sort of central focuses of research and discussion amongst feminist economists has to do with care and the care economy, economic Mm -hmm. care. So even way back, back in the 1990s, when, people were beginning to use the term feminist economics. I know that some of the early debates were about what was often called rational economic man or homo economicus. Mm -hmm. So at the mainstream orthodoxy, it's a model of individual, they're methodological individualists. So they would see all the economic outcomes as a result of individual decisions and individuals are thought to make decisions according to certain you know, Rules of human nature And so the feminists were talking about, you know the masculine so the rational economic man was supposed to be rational, obviously, um, uh, self-interested, you know, probably more competitive than cooperative. And so one of the early feminist critiques was about how there was a very truncated view of human nature and how sort of the traditionally so-called feminine traits of altruism, commitment, responsibility, caring, you know, so that economists were sort of uh, negating or ignoring the so-called feminine sides of humanity. And that in a way, it was almost like in the, at least in the West, this sort of traditional gender division, men were supposed to be cutthroat out in the economy and the so-called public sector as assertive, aggressive, competitive individuals and women were supposed to be at home just loving everyone and caring for everyone and so in a way you could almost say some of what sometimes i think is associated with religion or spirituality the love and the caring and the responsibility was kind of considered as feminine which always struck me weird that's in my you know childhood tradition All the pastors and the deacons were men, although I think that's been changing somewhat over time. But so that I actually think, you know, sometimes the stereotype of feminists, it comes from the second wave sort of liberal feminism saying, um, okay, so a feminist, they accept the sort of gendered structure, but they want women to be able to compete on equal footing with men in the so-called masculine sphere. So in business and politics. Women should become just like men and we're going to look down on stay at home moms or what have you. But I think that the more powerful thrust within feminist economics is to say all of that work that, you know, in the, at least since the beginning of capitalism, that women, you know, that stay at home moms are doing is really work. It's a key part of the economy. It's creating the foundation for prosperity and that we should give value to that work and that motives of care are really really important to the economy you know you shouldn't if you if every single individual in the world was just motivated by self-interest and you know succeeding on their individual basis how would humanity survive you know who would raise the kids and who would take care of the elders and et cetera?
1: these are these are powerful and transforming thoughts i think brenda really appreciate it and one of the things um I, was, I think I was introduced to this most when I read Rhianne uh, Eisler's book, The Real Wealth of Nations. Um, I don't know if she's actually an economist or writes about e- economics, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. But she talked a lot about the caring economy and how it's a different paradigm. And you, you've just been continually describing for us here about life in a different paradigm. And it's the paradigm I just want to embrace wholeheartedly um <laughs> i'm just i'm just so grateful the whole notion of of jubilee biblically is is about this paradigm and and the the interdependence the cooperation i remember i remember some years ago hearing um frischhoff capra talk uh from the university of california and he said i just want to i just have 20 minutes today to talk to you and i want to tell you that the most exciting discovery and the most transforming discovery in the life sciences in the last 20 years is that evolution has progressed not primarily through competition, but primarily through cooperation. He says, there is competition, but the primary way that life evolves and proceeds is through cooperation. And then he just said, so what's our economy doing? (laughs) um, Just making that that connection. The the rich interdependence between creatures um, all of that is, is just stirring in me these days, uh, Brenda, as to in the way to think about this so called so-called heterodox way of thinking uh, in a different paradigm. So, uh, you know, in, also in this regard, you know, um, caring isn't monetized. So it, it's given no monetary value. And so we, we have this, this very reductionist idea of how to measure an economy, which is through its growth. And it's killing us. Uh, comment, please, on growth and how you, in the in the feminist world, uh, talk about the measuring when an economy is really yeah. good.
2: Yeah. Actually, I wanted to step back just for a minute when you were saying that, uh, made, made the point about caring not being monetized. Because this, you know, another part of the feminist economics project has been looking at how there are many jobs in the market economy where people are care workers, right? So there's oh. of examples where the kinds of work that a mom would do or a grandmother, an aunt, a, a dad, unpaid at home, you might be doing in the marketplace for pay, right? I could be a child care worker. I could be a home health, health aide. Actually, the econometric statistical studies show that... <laughs> all else considered that if a job entails care activity and involves care, you're paid less. So it almost looks like there's, it's, it's it's got negative value associated with it. Right. And so to a feminist, that's something about saying, you know, mothering or caring for others isn't really work. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Mm -hmm. it is like some natural human thing. And so, you know, uh, I could hire you to do that, but I'm not going to value it very much. Mm -hmm. I I want to come back to your question, but I did was, as you were speaking, I was thinking a lot about how the pandemic Mm -hmm. has really sort of brought brought a lot of this to light and made it apparent to people. Now, I'm old enough to know that there's these times in history where I think, oh, it's not going to be apparent to everyone that this Mm -hmm. is going to change and then they don't, right? So, but, you know, if you're looking at, all the discussion about how many women had to ha- pull out of the labor force because, you know, their kids no longer had school and they needed to help them with their schooling or care for them. Um, you know, all the discussion now about whether workers might be able to still work from home. Um, I, I I recently saw some newspaper articles talking about LinkedIn and saying that, oh, they've added a function where you can say the reason I wasn't employed during this time period was because I was caring, uh, caregiver. Uh I, you know, so it seems like it's a moment of opportunity to sort of change how our economy looks at caregiving and to acknowledge that, you know, anyone who's selling labor in the economy also is a member of community and families and relationships in which we should expect them to care regardless of their gender. And we should allow space for their caring, but I'm not, you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic about where we end up because mm-hmm. frankly, just being able to work at home so that you can also care for your children could just be a ratcheting up of the, the workload for, for yeah.
1: work particular, yes.
2: right? So, oh, okay, now I can work from home, that's great, but now I'm gonna do two jobs at once, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, taking care of my child and doing this job at the same time.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so what I, was- I, I oh, would no, ask about the measurement, you know, so oh, given all the things that you're saying how, when we look at economics from, from a feminine, female gender perspective, what measurements really matter?
2: Yeah, I don't, there's so many uh, alternative measures out there, you know, different, different, you know, sort of organizations have different measurements. I don't, I don't think that feminist economists have coalesced around some specific, you know, Mm-hmm. main measurement that they'd like us to look at. I would say, you know, um, when feminist economists talk about redefining what is the economy or what is economics about, they often talk a lot about uh, sustaining lives or yeah. prov- providing for, for people or, uh, you know, the welfare, human welfare and dignity. Yeah. So, you know, for instance, if you're thinking about... Um, well, you know, one of the areas the United Nations Development Program has its um, Human Development Index. Yes. Yeah. And then they have a series of other ones, you know, Gender Development Index. And, you know, they have a lot of them that they publish every year. Yeah. And I, for people who do development economics, and I, I'm within that umbrella because I do mostly research in the Caribbean. So economies that are low or middle income, there's been a big move to say, you know, GDP or GNI per person is just one part of what we want to look at, but let's also look at uh, the HDI has um, education measures and um, what's the other one? Education GNI per person. I think it's, oh, yeah, it's, it's I think it's um, uh, long, longevity. Mm-hmm. If you look at the UNDP measures, when they pr- publish a human development report every year, they have a lot of other measures in addition to that. So I'm not sure um, you know, that a feminist economist would necessarily coalesce around one, yeah. although now two, two other things came to mind for me, two other things that, that feminist economists have really encouraged. One is to have uh, many countries have auxiliary, auxiliary accounts that go along with their... Um, you know, gross national income, gross national product accounts. So they've, uh, feminist economists have encouraged valuing non-market production, including housework and care labor, and, you know, not necessarily adding that into the gross national income, but, you know, having the ability to see a measure of how that's changing over time for our Mm -hmm. countries, many countries in the world that do measure, try to put a value on the unpaid Uh, housework, Mm -hmm. household labor, care labor. Even the United States, I can't remember. It's only within the last couple of decades. We have a time use survey now. And that was the second thing I was going to say. And that's part of valuing household production. A lot of economists now are doing time use studies. And so, in fact, I did a little pilot project in Jamaica doing a time use study where you have members of households keep a time diary where they're logging for say every 15 minutes, what was I doing during this 15-minute period? And in fact, they usually log not just their primary activity, but also secondary. So if you're if I was watching TV, but I was also, you know, taking care of kids at the same time, that's different than just being able to kick back and watch TV and not worry about the kids, right? So um, in order to be able to estimate the value of unpaid labor, household labor you have to know something about the amount of time that people are spending doing it and the different Mm -hmm. kinds of tasks people are doing. So time use has been another area of interest. Um, You know, not just that you could, you know, time poverty is different than income poverty and you could have a good income and no free time and that's a problem as well. So
1: yeah, wonderful. Now, uh, I think you said that I didn't quite catch... uh, I know that the UN uses the Human Development um, Index. Mm -hmm. Was it the UN that also has some of these other indices that you mentioned? Or where where could our listeners look for that online? Yeah, so
2: if you look up a human development report, which comes out every year from the UNDP, It has a whole set of tables. Oh, I'm thinking about the old book, but the same things will be found online. Okay. It has a lot of other information, uh, various environmental measures, more detail about education and health. And then they do like inequality disaggregated or regionally disaggregated HDI, or they do gender disaggregated measures. And so, you know, you could see say for China, that one province is much better off than another. So they have a lot of other data. And they're really trying to say it's about, um, well, you know, they're building on a Sins work about um, people's capabilities and to make choices and to decide who they want to be and what they want to do. And so they're trying to get at sort of a more, a richer sense of, of how
1: well off people are. Yeah, and and you mentioned Amartya Sen was he an Indian economist? Uh, yeah, so
2: Amartya Sen was from India. He spent much of his life teaching. I think I think he ended up most recently at MIT. So I think he he worked in the US, but he was initially and, from and India and the, had been known he a as a
1: Nobel Prize, I think.
2: Yes, he did. Yeah. So his um, I think his best known book is called Development as Freedom.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, just want to be able to put his name in the show notes mm-hmm. again for people who want to uh, look further into into his um, work this is really helpful to give help us realize uh, how many people are measuring the economy differently despite what we hear on the on the networks all the time uh, even on NPR's marketplace it's always growth is it growing yes. <laughs> are are the is the Dow Jones going up or is it going down? I, I just think, yeah. ah, tell me something relevant. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. it isn't like that it's irrelevant completely, but it it's so reductionist. I just yeah. it bothers me. Well,
2: you know, uh, I was just going to say quickly that I got to spend a semester with a group of Wheaton students in Bhutan, and Bhutan is often mm-hmm. as, um, gross national happiness index. Yes. And so I think it's presented as this sort of fluffy thing Well, there are happiness studies where scholars ask people, you know, to, to rank their happiness. And you can look at that. It's quite interesting, but Bhutan's measure is is quite, you know, carefully constructed, has many components to it. You know, they take it really seriously. So they have, you know, environment and they have some income components, but I I don't remember all of them right now, but they, they really did careful thinking about, you know, uh, uh measuring welfare in a way that wasn't just about material reality
1: Mm -hmm.
2: that's impressive
1: this has been fantastic Uh, we're out of time but i don't i don't want to end the conversation but we just (laughs) have to uh i want to enroll in your let's see what is it women in the u.s economy course
2: (laughs) well it might be online one day
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness, I I can just tell as you speak. You speak with great passion, and you're just following the deep desire and call of your heart and what you do. At least it sounds that way from the way you express yourself, and that in itself is a really laudatory thing. Um, Brenda, beyond thanks, just great gratitude for this time. If you have something more to say uh, uh, to to kind of bring us back down, (laughs) please do. Uh, Otherwise, we can just say farewell.
2: Oh, too much more to say. So I think I'll just say farewell at this point. But it's fun to talk to you and you pose great questions. And
1: really look forward to sharing this conversation with others. Thank you, Brenda. Thank
2: you. Thanks, Lee.
0: You've been listening to Lee's conversation with Brenda Weiss. Have you listened to our other recent episodes? In April, arborist Robin Reve on reversing climate crises through informed tree actions. Jubilee Economics Ministries continues to work with Robin. Planting and tending trees has become a radical spiritual practice as the planet continues to lose trees every year. In May, Nnedi Astudillo. On adding environmental actions to our spiritual practices. Nettie works with the organization Green Faith. In June, Carrie Radloff on Midwest environmental activism. She's an activist in a region of political conservatism. In July, Matt Brennan, an advocate for our, your congregation and nonprofit, on how to install solar power. Listen and learn how your congregation and nonprofit organizations can get clean solar power. Do listen. You're sure to pick up thoughts you'll value. We certainly did as we created those episodes. You can subscribe to this podcast under the name Simple Living Works at your favorite podcast service. Individual episodes are available at Jubilee's website, oneearthjubilee.com, and also simplelivingworks.org, window number three. Urge your friends to do the same. You're welcome to subscribe to Simple Living Works, various free publications. For our monthly e-news, send subscribe to simplelivingworks at yahoo.com. For our weekly email that provides brief daily simpler living nudges, send nudge to the same address, simplelivingworks at com. Please tell us your thoughts on these subjects in this episode. Leave a message on the Jubilee One Earth Economics and Simple Living Works Facebook pages. Until next time, this is Jerry Iverson of Simple Living Works with co-host Lee Van Ham of Jubilee One Earth Economics, wishing you well as we strive together to bring simpler one earth living into being for the common good.